Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Today, we are getting trigger happy and we're kicking off a new series for the month of February, all about triggering. Now, for some, the word trigger might feel familiar and for others, maybe not so much. I feel like it's among the most common words in my vocabulary, but I'm a trauma therapist, so I'm often surprised by how little others use it or know it. I guess it's probably kind of like a dentist using the word bicuspid as everyday language and nobody else does. Anyway, triggering is something I find myself talking with people about on a daily, most days hourly basis in my office. And while it's something we talk about a lot, It's also something that seems to be hard to nail down and describe for lots of folks. So today I want us to talk about what triggering is, what it feels like, and when it tends to show up. As we work through this series, we're going to dig into it a bit deeper and talk about the pros and cons of avoidance as a tactic for handling triggering, ways to prevent triggering, and ways to actively and proactively manage triggering when it does show up. I even have some resources to share with you that you can find in the show notes every week during this series that you can download and use to work through building your own personalized trigger management plan. I also really quickly want to mention that if you aren't following me on social media, you should. We're working to make our social media a hub for reflection, engagement, and connection. We'll be posting questions that invite you to dig deeper into how you make the tools we share on the podcast meaningful and tangible in your own life. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss and jump into the comments on question and reflection posts that we'll be putting up each week. Before we get too far down the path for today's topic, I do also want to put it out there that if you've heard the intro for this episode so far and you're thinking, I don't need this, I don't have triggers or get triggered, think again. While you may not be facing debilitating triggering in your career right now, and while you might never experience that degree of triggering, I sure hope you never do, I promise that the information we're covering during this series is just as important as a preventative tool as it is as an intervention tool. We can't know or predict when events will take place that will leave a mark on us. 
And we can't know or predict if, when, or how triggering might show up as a result of what we've been exposed to. If you work as a first responder or frontline worker offering crisis response services of any kind, you absolutely need to stick around for this. So let's get into it. What exactly is triggering? At the most foundational level, triggering is an emotional, psychological, and or physiological reaction to stimuli that's outside of our control. Triggering usually feels unexpected, automatic, and like it takes over. It can feel unconscious and difficult to consciously override and regain control of ourselves. It can be a feeling like sadness or fear. It can be psychological like flashbacks or intrusive thoughts. It can be physiological like racing heart or difficulty breathing. And it can be, and more often than not is, a combination of these things all rolled together. Fun, right? Being triggered is more than just getting worked up about something. I was watching something on the news recently, and the commentator used the word triggered to describe someone who was worked up about a topic. And while I can appreciate that the term can feel useful to mark the significance of someone's reaction, it's actually not quite the same thing. What the newscaster was identifying was someone taking offense to something and expressing their sense of being bothered. While it can be reactionary to get offended, it's usually connected to our beliefs and values, which we have some ability to look at, choose, and change if we wanted to. Meanwhile, triggering, true triggering, doesn't feel optional. It's connected not to our beliefs or values that we have some say in developing or altering, but rather to how our brains have interpreted, internalized, and held on to events that we didn't get a vote in choosing. Triggering isn't about getting upset by something or someone. It's more like being held hostage to a brain that had to face something hard and continues to feel subjected to that experience. What's worse is that for many who experience triggering, they don't always know what they're triggered by or even what experience that trigger connects back to. And this is where it really feels like being held hostage because we can feel swept up in reactions that take over our bodies, turn our day upside down, impact our ability to focus or function effectively, and we might not even be able to know why. So let's break down the mechanics of what's happening when triggering occurs. Your brain, while highly complex and interconnected, is also segmented into regions and areas that do different kinds of jobs. For example, we've talked a ton on the show before about the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain just behind your eyes and forehead and how this part of the brain is responsible for things like language and executive functioning, which really means our ability to make decisions, problem solve, and manage complex information. The prefrontal cortex is essentially the manager of your brain. It takes information from other areas like memory and values and so on, 
and funnels these pieces into how we want to choose to engage, respond, or interact with things that are happening in our lives now and into the future. Being in your prefrontal cortex, having this part of your brain actively turned on and working is pretty much the opposite of being in triggered mode. This part of our brain helps us to feel grounded, present, and in control. It feels regulated and capable. So where does triggering live in your brain? Well, it's pretty interesting actually. There are studies, and I actually had the chance to do my master's thesis research on just such a study, where researchers use EEG or other brain scan data to see what happens in the brain when we trigger the crap out of someone. How do we do this? Well, depending on the population we're studying, we might use images of something scary or associated with a traumatic event they've experienced, or we can use something called script-driven trauma provocation where the participants actually write the story of a traumatic event, which gets narrated and turned into an audio that they listen back to while hooked up to whatever brain scan tech is being used. I know it sounds cruel, but it's been a significant tool in understanding exactly what happens inside the brain when people get triggered. And the results are genuinely fascinating and informative in terms of how we go about thinking about triggering, as well as how we go about trying to treat triggering. When a brain is exposed to a trigger, something that your brain feels is in some way directly or vaguely tied to a traumatic or stress-inducing event that left a mark, your brain perceives this trigger as a threat, just like the event that your brain believes it represents. Essentially, your brain has this background system running all the time that's scanning for risk and threat and looks for it through the lens of what it's already known to be fear-inducing. When it picks up on any small reference to something that aligns with its previous experiences, it sets off an alert system in an effort to batten down the hatches to self-protect from anything even remotely like your previous experiences, from ever happening ever again. When your brain perceives something that seems affiliated to risk, it quickly activates your limbic system. Now, what is the limbic system? It's a region in your brain that's near the back of the brain, tucked up right above your brain stem at the base of your head and top of your neck. Your limbic system is the area of your brain responsible for your stress response, including fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses. Before we keep going, I'm gonna pause here for a moment because there are some really important things to know about your limbic system. First off, your limbic system is highly connected with a ton of your physiological responses. You know how your heart beats without you consciously thinking about it? Same with your breathing, your temperature regulation, like sweating or shivering, your blood pressure, and other unconscious moment-to-moment physiological basics. Your limbic system, when it perceives stress or a need to protect, automatically exerts influence over all of these systems. It's why your heart will speed up, your breathing will become more shallow, 
It even shifts blood flow away from your extremities and into your core. It does all of this to prepare you to be able to fight back, run away, or manage the risk in whatever way best leads to survival. Second, your limbic system has its own version of memory storage. Because it's so highly responsible for altering your physiological state, it tracks events and stores memory like a multi-sensory movie. It believes that it needs to recall all aspects of a traumatic or stress-inducing event in order to be able to effectively prevent it from recurring in the future. So it takes note of additional information that regular memories, non-traumatic memories, wouldn't normally care to remember. Things like smells, body positioning, vague sounds, lighting, all kinds of things that are way over and above what normal memory systems care to give strong attention to. Third, your limbic system doesn't own a watch. While other parts of your brain have access to a clock that lets it know whether something was past, present, or future, your limbic system only deals in the now. It doesn't frankly care if your heart beat 10 seconds ago or whether it will beat 10 seconds from now. It only cares that your heart is beating right now. The tricky thing about this is that memories connected to this area and stored as a multi-sensory movie aren't stored as memories from something that happened, past tense, but rather as something that is continuing to be happening whenever it gets, you guessed it, triggered. We're going to circle back to that in a second. But really quickly, I also want to let you know the fourth thing about your limbic system, and that is that it is not particularly well connected to your prefrontal cortex, meaning that it tends to operate in isolation and without a lot of input from the part of your brain that is able to problem solve, make decisions, and feel present and capable. On top of that, not only does it not have great connection to your prefrontal cortex, Your limbic system is also a fuel hog. What this means is that in order to prioritize survival, which your brain deems to be the highest priority, when risk is perceived, your brain will divert resources from other parts of the brain to your limbic system in an effort to give it its best chance at helping you to survive. We see this in brain scan data where the limbic system will become red hot while other regions of the brain, including the prefrontal cortex, essentially go offline. What this means is that the best part of your brain that does its best thinking, planning, and responding isn't made available to you as a resource when triggering happens. And that's a big problem and part of why we feel held hostage by these automatic responses that feel so outside of our own control. Okay, so now that you are a brain expert on all things limbic system, let's talk about what this has to do with triggering and how we use this information meaningfully. 
when a trigger happens, your brain sees it as somehow having some kind of clear or vague reference to an event that it has stored as traumatic or highly stressful. Now, triggering can be obvious and actually risky things, like being in the same room as a person who perpetrated something dangerous in a setting that feels risky or not controlled, like seeing someone who has caused harm in a casual setting where there's nothing stopping them from causing harm again. That's like a trigger that maybe really needs to be there to let me know that I'm at risk right now. These are the moments that triggers are made for, to keep us on high alert, to protect ourselves from re-experiencing similar risk of harm. Meanwhile, triggering can also show up when presented with something like a person who caused harm, but in a totally different and more controlled environment, like being triggered going to court to testify and seeing the perpetrator in the room. The space is relatively safe-ish, but triggering is still alerting us that something here has been unsafe before. Then there's this other category of triggering that is far less clear or obvious, and it tends to be connected to sensory information. An example is feeling triggered while walking through the mall past the cologne counter of one of the big box stores, because one of the colognes smells like what someone was wearing when something bad happened. The mall isn't particularly unsafe. The person who caused harm isn't present. By all standards, I should be pretty fine right now, but my body is losing its mind and feeling the need to kick up its fight, flight, freeze, fawn responses because it associates the smell to that multisensory movie. Remember, our limbic system, once activated, doesn't have access to a clock and reduces the capacity for my prefrontal cortex to intervene and help out. So when I'm triggered by something like a smell in an otherwise totally safe situation, my brain has difficulty knowing that I'm safe because it's focused on the data that says unsafe, unsafe, warning, warning. The term triggering is used really commonly when we're talking about PTSD or PTSI, but did you know that triggering can happen on a spectrum? While triggering can be connected to flashbacks and panic attacks, somewhat characteristic features of post-traumatic stress concerns, it can also happen for those who wouldn't meet the diagnosable criteria for PTSD. Its function is simply to be an alert system that, at the heart of it, is working to keep me safe and protected from reliving things that didn't feel okay the first time around. If you think back on it, there's probably some kind of early version of this that we can imagine. If I were a caveman and I go into the woods in one particular place and I am attacked by a bear there, I probably learn not to go back into that territory. My body is going to alert me, hey, heads up, this is where bad things happened. Don't go this way. I bet you've probably had some kind of far more modern day version or experience like this. For example, triggering is really common for people who have been in a car accident. Following an accident, getting in a car again can feel really uncomfortable and distressing. In most cases, the triggering will reduce and eventually wane as my body reestablishes a sense of security driving again. But in some cases, the body doesn't seem to find that sense of security. And instead, it grows the significance of the event to make super sure it never, 
ever happens again. Suddenly triggering won't just be when I'm driving, but also when I'm the passenger. It won't just be driving in nighttime or slippery conditions like when the accident happened, but also in broad daylight in dry weather. It can also start to grow from being triggered just in relationship to being in a car to then thinking about having to drive or other forms of travel entirely. And it can grow from feeling agitated or off to experiencing full-blown panic that completely shuts you down. When triggering goes from survival protective to dysfunctional is when it becomes disproportionate, overgeneralized, and so autopilot that we feel overcome by it and not in control of our own responses. I'm going to say that again because it's a bit of a measuring stick for you guys to hold on to. When triggering goes from survival and protective, which is what it's meant to be for, to dysfunctional, where it's no longer helpful to us, is when it becomes disproportionate, so our reactions are bigger than what they should be, overgeneralized, so we're now reacting to things that are more broad than what our original event would have been kind of indicative of, and so autopilot that we feel overcome by it and not in control of our own responses. So when the flashbacks or panic attacks or whatever might come up with it feels so big that we have a hard time working ourselves back down and regulating again. So I want to throw it back to you for a minute. I want you to consider where triggering happens for you and where it lives on the spectrum. What triggers are logical warning systems that seem proportionate to the events you've faced and helped to advise your safety? Can you think of a few? And then what triggers have gotten bigger than that, edging towards the disproportionate, overgeneralized, and totally autopilot? I know at this point, you're likely chomping at the bit with, Lindsay, that's all super interesting, but what the hell do I do with my triggering? And I'm sorry to leave you hanging, but I promise we'll get there. We're going to be talking about what to do with triggering over the next few weeks. So be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this, or sign up for our weekly emails that link to new weekly episodes of the podcast. You can find the links in the show notes for today's episode. In the meantime, I'll be posting access to my free Managing Trauma Triggers workbook in the show notes, and you can dive in there if you're a keener who can't wait till next week. Have at her. As we wrap up for today, I also want to give a heads up that for those who have been waiting to jump into the next round of the Self-Care Dare 5-Day Challenge for First Responders and Frontline Workers, your next chance is coming up. We will be launching registration for the D.A.R.E. two weeks from today on February 15th. If you're a new listener and you don't know about the D.A.R.E., let me give you a really quick rundown. It's a five-day challenge that invites participants to build a killer self-care plan to help protect and support sustainability both at work and in your actual personal life. You get daily videos that are really short and quick that cover five key domains of self-care, along with worksheets and guides to help you develop and implement your own personalized self-care plan. You also get access to a private Facebook group where we connect, discuss challenges, problem solve, and celebrate successes together. 
And I love giving away a few prizes along the way to keep you engaged and motivated because investing in yourself in this kind of way is so important. And I wanna make sure that you see it all the way through. You're worth it. So keep your eyes peeled. We'll be posting about it on our social media and to our email list. So if you haven't already, follow me on social media or sign up for the Self-Care Dare waitlist on our podcast webpage to get notified of when registration goes live. I will add that we are planning to cap registrations this time around. So be sure to register early on to claim your spot. I hope you'll join me for it and kick off 2022 with this investment in you and your wellness and vicariously the wellness of those who care about you. Because as we often say during the dare, taking care of me lets me take better care of others. Ensuring your own wellness is a win for everybody. As we wrap up, I want to remind you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, where you can follow me or tag me, or you can shoot me an email at support at thrive-life.ca. I continue to be so grateful to the many of you who seem keen to share about Behind the Line and spread the word to others on the front lines. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes or subscribe to our email list to hear from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. You'll find the details you need in the show notes, along with links to our Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide to help facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. We make all of this available to you because the work you do matters, but more than that, you matter. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of the work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.